I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the 12th episode of IntroVets. Hola. Today we have a case for you. A case for you? Mm-hmm. And you, and you, for everybody. JJ, tell us about Betty. So Betty is a five-year-old female spade schnauzer mix. Oh, a schnauzer. Oh. It was being seen for second opinion. Never seen at this hospital previously. She presented weak vomiting and not eating. Mm. Never good. The owner knows that Betty is having another bout of pancreatitis and wants some type of long-term fix. Mm. Yep, schnauzers, pancreatitis. Sounds okay. about right. Betty has been diagnosed with pancreatitis about once a month for the past six months. Damn. That's a lot. Yeah. Sometimes the episodes are related to the feeding of people food or a treat, but sometimes there's no known trigger. The patient tends to respond well to about 24 hours of hospitalization with IV fluids and serenia, but last time the pet took a lot longer to recover. Hmm. Blood work is usually normal except for pancreatitis tests. Lately, due to cost concerns, Betty has been treated symptomatically without repeating any testing. Mm. Hmm. Okay. What are we seeing on physical exam? Uh, the patient is quiet but alert and responsive. Uh, no interest in treats. Heart and lung sounds are normal. The patient has grade 2 dental calculus. He's got a tense and painful cranial abdomen. Evidence of <laughs> diarrhea under tail. Ew. Yep. Uh, <laughs> The patient weighs about eight pounds today and has a mildly thin body condition, very dehydrated with a tacky mucous membranes. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Mm. Mm. So the other part of this is we can't forget to thoroughly review the history. So this patient has been having really, a, this is just a continuation of other things that have been going on. So we know what the owner has told us about the history but we need to look at the actual notes. So we need to have the owner get the history or call ourselves to the other hospitals that have seen her and get the history. Uh, sometimes owners are wrong about things. Mm. So we need to ask for the actual records. Sometimes people want to send a receipt summary that just says like they, you know, had these services, but they don't contain things like, the physical exam findings or the lab work results. We, for this case, really need like the actual medical notes from the case. Mm -hmm. And we need to dig into that. So, JJ, mm -hmm. when we dig into the history, what are we seeing? Uh, we are seeing that the pet has lost two pounds over the past six months. Okay. Mm -hmm. Blood work, including a complete blood count or CBC, a mini chemistry profile, and a pancreatitis test has been performed twice, once six months ago and once four and a half months ago. Both showed similar results. No significant abnormalities on either the chemistry profile or the CBC, and a positive SNAP pancreatitis test, or CPL. Radiographs were also taken at the first and second visits for GI signs and appeared normal. The subsequent three hospitalizations have been performed without further testing at owner request. Hmm. Okay. So, 
in the history, the things that I don't care for are the weight loss, the two-pound weight loss over the past six months. Mm -hmm. The fact that the patient has continued to show, you know, these intermittent clinical signs. And then I'll maybe express a little bit of frustration that many chemistry profiles, like not many like M-A-N-Y, like lots of them, but many (laughs) like M-I-N-I, tiny Mm -hmm. ones have been performed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of in-house blood work machines will have like different clips or, you know, rotors that you can choose from. And if we select the smallest one, sometimes it leaves out a bunch of important information. Mm. So I don't I don't love that part. So. Yeah, I would think that, you know, if you started with that, great. But if the patient comes back, has similar symptoms, maybe you need to do a more broader testing because, you know, it's not normal really for these things to keep occurring like mm-hmm. this. Yeah, something is going on. If it is pancreatitis, then, you know, we got to figure out why, right? But mm-hmm. so let's build a differential list. So I think, well, it's a schnauzer top of the list. I mean, schnauzers and other dogs do get chronic pancreatitis that that flares up kind of cyclically. I mean, I think that's a reasonable differential. Mm -hmm. But anytime we're considering that, I always have to remind myself, you know, we got to look for why. Why Mm -hmm. is it happening? Because pancreatitis doesn't just exist, you know, by itself. There's usually some other problem happening that's that's making it occur. And the pancreatitis test is not necessarily specific just for pancreatitis. And so it could possibly be like a false positive for pancreatitis. Yeah. So the test can be, quote, falsely positive or falsely negative. Mm -hmm. Really, the only way to truly diagnose pancreatitis, like for sure, technically is to biopsy the pancreas but <laughs> but let's not um, do that <laughs> yeah we feel pretty comfortable i think with ultrasound like if mm-hmm. we if we're looking with ultrasound the changes documented on an ultrasound can be pretty definitive mm-hmm. but i think we should feel cautious about saying up oh, pancreatitis if it's a positive cpl only mm-hmm. i mean certainly though <laughs> You know, I I practice ER medicine a lot, and, you know, if I have a patient come in, it's a schnauzer, it's got these symptoms, it's got a a positive CPL, I mean, the way you treat pancreatitis is with supportive care. I'm going to treat that dog with supportive care like Mm -hmm. it's got pancreatitis, you know, but but the chronicity here to me is the thing that's a little bit worrisome. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure nothing else is happening, so... As far as other things that could be going on, inflammatory bowel disease would be high on my list of possibilities. Possibly neoplasia, maybe not as common, but not impossible. Right. It's a young dog, but I mean, babies have cancer sometimes. Weird things so, happen. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes I would think about a chronic foreign object. I've seen dogs that have eaten objects that kind of hang around in the stomach and will get this sort of intermittent gastritis when the um, object kind of bounces around in just the right way, and then they'll sometimes be completely asymptomatic. That doesn't always show up on radiographs either, does it? Since it's right. uh, maybe because it moves around, so you may have sometimes where the gas pattern may be suspicious and other times where it's not. Right. And if it's in the stomach, you yeah. know, 
sometimes it can be harder to see unless the dog has done us a favor and eaten like a rock or like a, you know, a steak knife or something, you know, like super visible. Something radio opaque or something. Yeah. If it's some other type of thing that might be less radio opaque, it might be difficult to find it. Mm -hmm. I know of a dog that ate, that shredded and ate a towel and developed a linear foreign uh, body, but the dog didn't just get ultra sick right away. It had this waxing and waning sort of presentation, and ultimately the dog was diagnosed with a chronic intermittent foreign object, linear foreign body, and had to have surgery. Mm. Uh, but the towel, like the owners recognized, oh, that's, that's the towel we saw the pet eat two months ago. I mean, it had been wow. a long time, and we were like, how? <laughs> how is that possible? But it's a steal. <laughs> yeah. So malabsorption, maldigestion disorders, there are mm -hmm. many of those. So we'll just kind of group them into a kind of a lump together. Addison's disease. Yeah, I think that's a great one. And then we'll add chronic parasitism. Uh, our old friend. Yeah, it doesn't look like we've tested a fecal test. So I think mm -hmm. that we need to put that on the list Ah, uh, because we've had a case of it before. Mm-hmm. All right. So now what should we do? Well, the first thing that I'm going to do is talk to this owner a little bit about like goals and expectations, because this dog has got a problem, and it's going to take a little bit of time and patience and money mm -hmm. to get it figured out. So I'm going to be talking with the owner and saying, hey... There's a lot of potential frustrations when we're working up any type of chronic GI case. This is going to take time. First, we need to get the pet feeling better. But once the pet's feeling better, we can't just keep going on in this pattern of, well, the pet's better. Let's drop it until the pet gets sick again. We really need to dig in and figure out what's going on. And I tell them, I'm going to talk to you about what plan A is, which is what we're going to do if we have no limitations. And if we find that that's not going to be okay, cost-wise, time-wise, you know, whatever the case may be, then we'll let me know and we'll have to come up with a plan B. If the owner says, I don't want to talk about those things, just do whatever the pet needs. I don't care what it costs. Don't believe them. It's a trap. <laughs> that is a trap. We still need to have that conversation. Yes, Aguilar. <laughs> have them trap. sign a treatment plan anyway. <laughs> okay. So for testing. In a perfect world, what I'm going to want to do is repeat some lab work. So I'm going to want a complete blood count. I want a full chemistry profile, the whole shebang, not a mini mm -hmm. one. And I want a urinalysis to round out our minimum database. I'm going to want to do some fecal parasite testing to try to rule out intestinal parasites. I'm going to want to retake some radiographs. I know that we've taken them twice before, but Sometimes you find the thing that's just gotten bad enough that now we see it. Mm -hmm. And depending on those initial results, we might need to do some further testing. And those sorts of things might involve like, you know, bigger things, a full abdominal ultrasound. We might have to send in additional testing. Like if we suspect a malabsorption or maldigestion issue, we're going to have to send in additional panels. But that can probably wait a couple of days till we get back some results and get the pet feeling better. We also need to treat the patient now because the patient is actively sick. So I'm going to want to hospitalize this patient, um, treat her with IV fluids, with antiemetics, which are nausea medicines, with antidiarrheals, and pain medicine because she's got that painful cranial abdomen. Mm -hmm. Okay, JJ, 
How did they decide to treat Betty? They gave uh, IV fluids for supportive care, uh, serenia for nausea and vomiting, buprenorphine for pain. Further treatment was delayed until they got the test results back. Okay. What sort of test results did they see? Fecal parasite test was NPS, no parasites seen. Okay. Uh, radiographs of the abdomen were unremarkable, and mm-hmm. the CBC was all within the normal limits. Okay. So the chemistry profile uh, showed a mild azotemia, so we had elevated BUN and creatinine. The BUN was 36 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine was 3 milligrams per deciliter. We had a mild lower albumin, which was 2.2 grams per deciliter. Okay. We had a slightly low sodium level, which was 133 millimoles per liter. Okay. A elevated potassium level of 6 millimoles per liter. This is a sodium-potassium ratio of 22. Okay. Your analysis shows the less urine-specific gravity at 1010. Well, so these are exciting findings right here on this chemistry profile. And all of these findings kind of point to one potential working diagnosis, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about them just a little bit. So you mentioned a mild azotemia. That just means elevation of urea, nitrogen, and creatinine. And many people are used to associating this with, quote, kidney failure. But we need to be careful when we're using that term. Really, it just means that these values are elevated, right? And there could be several different types of causes. They can be the kidneys themselves. It could be something happening outside of the kidney. It could be pre-renal or post-renal. So we have to always remember that changes in the creatinine and urea nitrogen do not mean, quote, kidney failure in every case. The low albumin is a little bit concerning. And then this sodium to potassium ratio of 22 is highly suggestive of one particular working diagnosis, and that is Addison's disease Mm. or hypoadrenocorticism. A low sodium to potassium ratio is highly suggestive of an Addison's diagnosis. Now, it's not pathognomonic. There are other things that can cause this type of ratio, but a sodium to potassium ratio less than 27 is approximately 93% sensitive and 96% specific for a diagnosis of primary hypoadrenocorticism. <laughs> and in looking back at the previous lab work in Betty's case, we find that since a mini chemistry profile was performed, there actually weren't any electrolyte measurements included in that. So it's possible that this could have been picked up sooner if we'd have run a bigger test six months ago. Boo. Yeah. So that's frustrating. The mild azotemia and hypoalbuminemia are very common with Addison's disease. So if this is Addison's disease, then that explains those findings. In other words, I I think that one disease process can explain all of the abnormalities that we're seeing. But this doesn't confirm the diagnosis. Um, There's still other things it could be. So we need to do some testing to try to figure this out. But first... I think we should talk a little bit about Addison's disease. Yes. What is it? Please tell me. I'm excited. So Addison's disease, or hypoadrenocorticism, is a deficiency in mineralocorticoid and or glucocorticoid secretion from the adrenal gland. Mm. To talk Mm. about this, I think we have to first discuss what the adrenal gland does normally. So... The adrenal gland is super important and secretes a lot of important substances in the body. 
It's made up of two parts. There is an adrenal cortex, which is the outer portion, and there is a medulla, which is the inner portion. The cortex has three layers. The zona glomerulosa produces aldosterone. That's the main mineralocorticoid. The zona fasciculata produces glucocorticoids, and the zona reticularis produces sex hormones. The adrenal medulla secretes catecholamines. These are things like dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, a.k.a. adrenaline. Mm-hmm. So what are glucocorticoids? That's big word. Yeah. Um, the glucocorticoids produced by the zona fasciculata do a lot of things in the body. So I'm just going to hit you with a quick list. So they stimulate gluconeogenesis. That just means making sugar uh, in the liver and also glycogenesis in the liver, storing sugar in the liver. They enhance fat and protein breakdown. They maintain the vascular reactivity to catecholamines like dopamine and epinephrine. They maintain the body's blood pressure, and they're involved in tons of metabolic reactions. So in other words, they're very importante. Yes, they're really, really important. (laughs) So tell me what are mineralocorticoids? So these increase sodium absorption and potassium secretion in the kidneys, sweat glands, salivary glands, and intestinal epithelial cells. So they also have a super important function. Mm -hmm. Depending on the type of Addison's disease that you have, you might be deficient in both glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids, or you might just have a deficiency in the glucocorticoids. Mm. So what are the types of Addison's disease? So this is interesting. Um, Addison's disease is classified kind of in two different ways. The first is typical versus atypical, and the second is a primary versus secondary. I'm going to talk about typical versus atypical first because I think that's what most people are familiar with, and Mm -hmm. then we'll come back to primary versus secondary. So... Typical Addison's disease involves a deficiency of both the mineralocorticoids and the glucocorticoids. And atypical Addison's disease involves just a deficiency in the glucocorticoids. The mineralocorticoids are at normal levels. Hmm. Now, typical, so a deficiency of both, is much more common than atypical disease. The designation between primary and secondary Addison's disease has to do with where the actual problem exists in the body. So primary Addison's disease involves failure at the adrenal gland level itself. This is way more common than secondary Addison's disease. And the reason that primary disease happens is thought to be an immune-mediated process, so immune-mediated destruction of the adrenal cortex. But there's some other possible causes. So say you have a a patient that has Cushing's disease, which is too much steroid production, uh, but they're on medicine to suppress that. We might have destruction of the adrenal cortex because of some of those drugs like lysogen or less commonly trilostane. If the patient for some reason has had both adrenal glands removed or severely damaged, if they've had, say, surgery to remove both of them, uh, there was some sort of major trauma, um, some sort of, you know, presence of cancer in both or or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Now, primary disease, so disease at the level of the adrenal gland, can be either typical or atypical. So either one. But the guys that start off atypical, so just with a glucocorticoid deficiency, if it's a primary issue, some of those dogs will ultimately turn into a, a typical type, meaning originally they're just glucocorticoid deficient, but over time, and theoretically with further immune-mediated damage, then the mineralocorticoid deficiency then develops and, and they have they become typical. And again, primary disease is much more common than secondary. But secondary Addison's disease occurs when the lack of um, steroid production by the adrenal gland isn't caused by the adrenal gland, but by a deficiency in one of the hormones that creates the response from the adrenal glands. So this could be either decreased CRH secretion from the hypothalamus. CRH is corticotropin-releasing hormone. Or it might be from decreased ACTH secretion by the pituitary gland. ACTH is adrenocorticotropic hormone. And one reason that might happen is, say, if the pituitary gland was destroyed, um, like if you had a cancer there, some sort of trauma, or really bad inflammation. Now, the other way that secondary Addison's disease might occur is if you have been on steroids for a while and suddenly they're withdrawn, or if you were on a really super high dose of steroids and they were withdrawn suddenly instead of tapered. Mm. Now, secondary Addison's disease is atypical, so it'll just be a deficiency in the glucocorticoid. And it's unknown how many patients are truly affected by this. It's very difficult to study. Um, so it's, again, the least common type, uh, but we don't really know the true incidence. Hmm. So, JJ. Yes. Tell me about the clinical signs of Addison's disease. So there's two different types of uh, clinical presentation when it comes to the symptoms. There's the waxing and waning clinical signs, which are going to include lethargy, weakness, anorexia, diarrhea, dehydration, polyuria, polydipsia, or PUPD, just increased thirst and increased urination, uh, shaking, weight loss, depression, and a possible painful abdomen, kind of mm -hmm. like our schnauzer friend. Yeah. During the exam, uh, you may also notice bradycardia, which is just a decreased heart rate, a poor capillary refill time. You may also notice a weak femoral pulse and cardiac arrhythmias that's secondary to the increased potassium level. Now, the waxing and waning type is much more common mm -hmm. than the other type. So this would be Betty's type if this is what we truly have going on with Betty. She's this chronic waxing and waning yeah. presentation. Yeah. And unfortunately, because those type of symptoms can also be several other different things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always compute to. Yeah. That's why it's, you know, good to if you've got chronic GI or even just chronic doing poorly, checking that bigger panel, because that's going to give you a little more clue as to what's going on. I agree. I think Addison's disease should be on the list anytime we have uh, chronic GI signs, even if they're intermittent, and even if the pet has previously gotten better without steroid administration, mm -hmm. that's a very classic presentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the uh, other type of presentation is the acute or crisis presentation. Mm -hmm. um, the patient can present as extremely weak or even unconscious. 
They usually are in hypovolemic shock, which is basically the level of circulating blood volume is decreased to the point that it impairs oxygen delivery to the tissues, um, which is bad. <laughs> yeah, bad. They're uh, usually very weak, dehydrated, which, you know, of course goes along with a hypovolemic situation. Um bradycardia, which is kind of what we had before, decreased heart rate, a weak pulse, diarrhea, vomiting, hypothermia, which is the decreased body temperature, mm-hmm. hypoglycemia, which is a low blood sugar, painful abdomen, and a slow capillary refill time. Yeah. So these guys are in a major emergency situation, and they need emergency and critical care stats. Yeah. And this is scary. Mm-hmm. This is the patient that the owner brings in and you walk into the room and think, oh, God, the patient is dying right here on the table. You know, these guys, these guys need immediate resuscitative measures like they they are circling the drain when they come in. I mean, they when they show up, you, you may not necessarily know what else going on. You just have a, a limp creature. So you have to go mm-hmm. in and like, OK, if the. The thermometer's not registering, the glucometer's not registering, and um, they've had a history of recent symptoms from the waxing and waning, the vomiting and diarrhea. It's kind of like, hmm, I think you might need a steroid injection. <laughs> Real quick luck. <laughs> I, what I will say, though, when they come in in crisis like this, it is possible to stabilize them without administering steroids. Like, mm-hmm. that's technically possible. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can't avoid it. But these guys, when they come in, I mean, most of the time you're not going to be like, aha, this is Addison's, like right off the bat. Most of the time you're like, what the crap? You know, and you start um, resuscitative measures like you would for anyone. So IV catheter, glucose, warming, you know, all Mm -hmm. of, you know, fluid therapy, all of the things that you would normally do if the patient was in shock. And then the diagnosis usually shakes out on the back end uh, of stabilization. Yeah. So. I've had to, like, some that are in crisis, you kind of get them stable, but they don't remain stable. Mm-hmm. They'll yeah. go right into another crisis pretty quickly. You're like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> These guys, I mean, they need intensive care and monitoring. You cannot walk away, even for a second. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, JJ, mm-hmm. is Addison's disease more common in certain types of dogs? It sure is. The breeds that are more um, susceptible are going to be American Cocker Spaniels, Bearded Collies, Cairn Terriers, Great Danes, Great Pyrenees, which that's the ones that I've seen have it the most. Really? Mm-hmm. Labrador Retrievers, Nova Scotia Duck. <laughs> Funny thing about this one, I mistyped duck trolling retriever instead of tolling. I was just about to say... <laughs> I was just about to say duck trolling. Yeah. <laughs> Nova okay, Scotia sorry. duck tolling retriever. <laughs> Pomeranians, Portuguese water dog, Rottweiler, soft-coated Wheaton Terriers, Standard Poodles, and West Highland White Terriers. I think it's interesting you've seen a lot of uh, Great Pyrenees with this because mm-hmm. I've seen Poodles and Westies. Just mm-hmm. Poodles, Westies, Poodles, Westies. Seen just some Westies. There's a reason a Westie is on the box of Percorton is what I'm saying. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a reason. There's <laughs> a lot of things wrong with Westies. Nothing against people who love Westies, but dear God, they have issues. Can they have issues. <laughs> what about what about age? More than 80% of dogs diagnosed are seven years or younger. Mm-hmm. 
Also, 70% happen to be female, uh, but it can occur in any age, sex, or breed. Yeah, so we typically think young female dogs, but I've seen it in old male dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can't ever rule it out, but if you're seeing, you know, waxing away the symptoms, you've got a young female dog. I mean, gosh, like, just keep it on your mind all mm-hmm. the time, because it's easy to miss Addison's disease as a potential differential. So. We think we know what's going on with Betty, but we still need to confirm the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, JJ, mm-hmm. what type of testing are we going to do to confirm a suspicion of Addison's disease? So the gold standard test is going to be the ACTH stimulation test. Mm-hmm. What that does is it measures how well the adrenal glands respond to the ACTH hormone. ACTH, as we talked about earlier, is produced by the pituitary gland, and it stimulates the adrenal glands to release a hormone called cortisol. Basically, how you perform the test is a patient will present fasted, and you'll take a pre-sample, and then some form of ACTH is then administered to the patient, usually IV. Mm-hmm. And then after a certain amount of time, depending on the type of the, the form of ACTH that you're injecting, um, a post sample is taken. I know the. Can we say some of the forms, like Cortrison? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say you know Cortrison is the preferred. Yeah. Um, they make an ACTH gel, mm-hmm. but my understanding is that the ACTH gel is associated with sometimes kind of variable results, mm-hmm. and isn't isn't recommended. So. Yeah. Um, Brand name Cortrison um, is really the gold standard thing to use, especially if you're trying to diagnose Addison's disease. Mm -hmm. Say you are using something that's maybe compounded for whatever reason, doesn't have strong efficacy. You could accidentally diagnose a non-Addison's dog with Addison's disease. So you want to make sure that you're using the right dose and whatever type of ACTH that you're using is properly formulated and at proper strength Mm -hmm. to create the result we expect. Yeah. And it's a pretty easy test to do. I mean, using Mm -hmm. the Cortrison, once you um, inject the calculated amount, you wait for an hour and then draw your post sample. And then at that point, the patient's ready to go home. Yeah. Um, You'll send the pre and post samples Well, not Betty. Betty needs to stay in the hospital. Betty has to stay in the hospital because she'd be sick. (laughs) But if the patient is stable, then (laughs) they can go home. then they can go home, but Betty got to stay. She she yeah. has naughty guts and has to stay at the hospital. But. That's right. <laughs> uh, so those samples are sent out to a reference lab for results. Basically, if your pre and post sample are both less than two micrograms per deciliter, then you got you a case of Addison's disease. Yep. Yep. In this case, if Betty's pre and post sample are both less than two, that's confirmatory. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one situation where you might have that type of test result returned and it not be Addison's, and that's if the patient has had some sort of steroid recently. Mm-hmm. So we would need to make sure that we take that as part of the history. But Betty does not have a history of steroid administration at all in the past six months, and so we feel pretty confident that we're sending this test out. We're going to get accurate results. It makes me so. wonder like, how difficult it might have been you know, back in the day when people handed steroids out like candy. Um, <laughs> Some people still hand steroids out yes, like candy. Yes, they do. Naughty. 
Now, there's one other test that I think we hear about a lot, basal cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. How useful is that type of test? Um, It could be used to screen for Addison's disease, but not to diagnose it. It's literally just measuring a single resting cortisol. Mm -hmm. And if it's less than two, then it's highly suggestive, but it's still not a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And a long time ago, people used to say like, well, an ACTH stem is so expensive. You know, what if you just ran a basal cortisol? And then if it's less than two, then do the ACTH stem. But then when I've priced it out, a basal cortisol is flipping expensive. Mm -hmm. So like, just do the ACTH stem. Unless it's like a Great Dane or something that's going to take a crap ton of cortrosin. I I think that you're going to come out fine if you just go straight to the ACTH stem. Mm. Okay. Back to Betty. Back to Betty. Betty had an ACTH stimulation test. What were the results? Betty's ACTH stimulation test showed low pre and post values and Addison's disease was diagnosed. So let's talk about how we're going to treat these guys. If you have a patient with Addison's disease presenting in a crisis situation, Stabilization of the patient with IV fluids and treatments for shock is actually the most important thing, Mm. which is good because often Addison's isn't recognized right out of the gate in those acute patients. Mm -hmm. The good news is that the things that you do to fix it are the things that you do to fix any patient with shock. So fluid therapy is at the top of our list. So it's the most important thing for stabilization of these acute Addisonian crisis guys. Now, this is super important. Historically, Sodium chloride in ACL has been promoted as the go-to fluid for Addison's disease. That Mm -hmm. is no longer the case. Hmm. So, you know, for years and years, I've always heard, reach for NACL, reach for NACL. Nope. Hesitate. (laughs) Because (laughs) NACL can create really rapid correction of that low sodium of the hyponatremia. And it results in neurologic signs in some patients. The twitching, yes. Seen that. Isotonic balanced sodium-based solutions like lactated ringers, Normasol-R, or Plasmalite are now considered to be the preferred fluid. So this is important, especially if you work with uh, clinicians who maybe haven't been to Addison's CE in a minute. You know, maybe they've been out for kind of a long time. The NACL thing is like a... 10 years ago or more type of recommendation, but this has changed a lot in the past 10 years, and I would say even more so in the past five. So uh, if y'all are listening to this and you work with, uh, I mean, uh, if you work with older practitioners, (laughs) okay, mention it, go in and be like, hey, I, I was looking and I was listening to this podcast, and did you know that you shouldn't reach for NACL right away on those Addison's patients because of this and have them look it up, okay? Because <laughs> um, you know, Addison's is one of those things you don't think about a lot until you have one, and then you kind of do what you're the most comfortable with. So that's importante. Once we start fluid therapy, we need to monitor electrolytes like hella monitor them, like mm-hmm. very, very frequently throughout the day. The hyponatremia, that's low sodium, does need to be corrected gradually. It's not recommended to increase the sodium by more than 8 to 12 milliequivalents per liter per day. So we need to to tiptoe. Now the hyperkalemia, that's the elevated potassium, that tends to become corrected kind of on its own with fluid therapy. But occasionally those patients need extra therapy like 
calcium gluconate, like regular insulin combined with dextrose, or sodium bicarbonate to get the potassium levels down. Those things we don't reach for right away. We kind of take a step back and see what the potassium does, uh, unless the potassium is just so out of whack that the patient is super clinical. Sometimes in our Addison's crisis patients, we'll see other things like hypoglycemia, like hypercalcemia. If those are present, we, we might need to require treatment. It just depends on how the pet is doing clinically. And glucocorticoid therapy is started right away, like as soon as we figure out that this is what's going on. And if you have a stable non-vomiting patient, the most common choice is going to be prednisone or prednisolone orally. But if oral therapy isn't possible, there are other options like hydrocortisone sodium succinate, prednisolone sodium succinate, or dexamethasone sodium phosphate. Now, when we're giving steroids to these patients, though, we need to remember that we're treating a deficiency of the normal steroid supply. You don't need a high dose. Mm. So make sure that you get out your formulary and refer to current doses for Addison's disease. In other words, don't immunosuppress your Addison's <laughs> patients accidentally. You don't need to be giving them some whopping anti-inflammatory even dose of steroid. Even that is too high. You want to avoid administering prednisone or prednisolone before performing an ACTH stimulation test. That's really important because it can affect the results. And how it affects the results is to say your patient might look like they have Addison's disease when they don't really. Mm -hmm. So there is one medicine, dexamethasone, that you can administer prior to an ACTH stimulation test. It doesn't generally affect the results as long as you're giving a dose for Addison's disease, okay, meaning a lower dose. But even dexamethasone can suppress the response to ACTH to some degree. So in a perfect world, you would go ahead and run the ACTH stimulation test like ASAP as soon as you suspect what's going on and then give the steroid, but sometimes it's just not reasonable. Sometimes you just have to do what you got to do. So how long would you, if you say you had to give some sort of uh, steroid for the crisis, um, how long would you need to wait before doing the ACTH? I don't know. I would need to look that up really quickly, but I can uh, look it up real fast. I think that you can do it right away. Uh -huh, but let me look and see. Okay. Uh, I have looked this up on a veterinary message board. I'm not going to say who's sharing this information because I haven't gotten their permission <laughs> to talk about it. But this response says, absolutely, you can do the ACTH stimulation test on the same day. Dexamethasone does not interfere with the cortisol assay. So, but, so yes, you can do it the same day. In an absolute perfect world, then the second that you suspect Addison's disease, you would be on the phone with the owner saying... <sighs> I suspect Addison's disease and we need to run this test and it would be great if we could do it before we gave her steroids. Is that okay? And the owner would be like, yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. You know, chronic maintenance therapy is going to involve a mineralocorticoid supplementation. It's going to be needed for all cases of primary hypoadrenocorticism that are typical. So there are two ways that we can replace the mineralocorticoid. The most common is a medicine called DOCP, that's desoxycorticosterone pivolate, marketed as percordant and zycortal. The dosing amount and interval is adjusted over time to maintain normal electrolytes 
and the uh, dose and the interval is going to be varying just depending on the patient. So in one study uh, of DOCP in long-term Addison patients who are well-adjusted, the mean dosing interval was 58 days with a range anywhere from 38 to 90. So that's important too because DOCP is on the expensive side. And sometimes the cost is a barrier to treatment. So while we can't say owner, definitely we're going to be able to do it less than once a month. We can say a lot of dogs, we don't have to do it every single month right on time after a while, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you have a patient who is Addisonian, who's kind of been on DOCP injection every 28 days for like five years, it's probably a good idea to start like gradually working out just to see, you know, how... How long can they go before their electrolytes start being affected? The other option for mineralocorticoid supplementation is called fludrocortisone acetate. The brand name is Florinef. Uh, this is an oral medicine. It has a mineralocorticoid and it does have some glucocorticoid effects as well. So about 50% of the patients on Florinef don't need extra glucocorticoid supplementation, but that means that the other half of them do. Mm-hmm. Now, Florinef is not preferred because some dogs never become well-regulated or they require such a high dose of the medicine to become well-regulated with their electrolytes that the glucocorticoid effects are undesirable. Uh, So they're just like PUPD, like, you know, crazy. I think the only reason that it's still somewhat used is that, like, it tends to be less expensive. Um, But electrolyte levels rarely return to normal on Florinef in any patient. They typically maintain at least mild electrolyte abnormalities, even if they're not having clinical symptoms. But in many cases, the electrolytes fail to stabilize at all, and the patient's still clinical. And in those cases, you just have to change to DOCP. And then I put in my case, (laughs) (laughs) I prefer to just do DOCP and put Florinef into the trash can (laughs) because I, every case that I've ever encountered who who was on it was doing poorly and I switched them to DOCP and they did fine. So I am not a fan personally. When we're replacing the mineralocorticoid, we need to monitor the patient carefully. So we're going to be looking at serum electrolyte measurements pretty frequently until they become normal. Uh, Then we're going to want to do it at least every three to four months for around the first two years. But once we get out to that point, then we can go to every six months and feel pretty good about it. The other thing that we're going to need to supplement is glucocorticoids. So prednisone, hydrocortisone, or methylprednisolone are common options. You want to, again, make sure that you're using physiologic doses of these. The dose of, say, prednisone that's needed to maintain an Addisonian dog is incredibly small. Again, don't be immunosuppressing these Addisonian dogs. They just need a tinch of steroid to keep going. Now, if the patient is undergoing stressful events, um, boarding, grooming, traveling, surgery, that kind of a thing they probably will need a temporarily higher dose. Uh, It's important to remember that. Monitoring of the glucocorticoid supplementation is based on clinical response, so having the owners monitor how the pet feels at home and look for the symptoms of Addison's disease. Now, ACTH stimulation tests aren't required for monitoring purposes, 
But a recent study did show that measuring the endogenous ACTH might help optimize glucocorticoid therapy, especially if the patient has historically had pretty ambiguous signs of illness. Like, it's kind of hard for the owner to decide, like, are these symptoms or is the dog normal? Or if the patient is having symptoms that might be Addison's or they might be something else. Something I kind of want to go back and revisit for a second that you had talked about yeah. um, just a minute ago is how... If the Addisonian patient is going to be in some sort of stressful event to increase mm-hmm. the PRED, it is possible, it has happened, that if you have a patient that gets an unexpected stressful event, it can th- trigger them into a crisis. And if they are not monitored during that time or say they're at home alone, owners at work, you know, they can actually pass away but without mm-hmm. knowing what's going on. that That's the part of Addison's disease that kind of scares the crap out of me and that, you know, you can have a pretty well-regulated pet, but say your pet's kind of predisposed to being a nervous Nelly and there's an unexpected bad thunderstorm and they're really storm-phobic. I don't know. I would be like having a camera on my dog and just... Sat. I don't know that that's always taken into consideration with the owners. I haven't personally known of a case that you know that had some sort of thing happen at home that resulted in a in passing away um but it's certainly i mean it's not outside the realm of possibility what i've seen happen is major major stuff like the patient was taken to board for 2 weeks and then mm-hmm. had a crisis you know or the um the patient had an ultra stressful nail trim, you know, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Without getting extra steroid. But the way that some dogs react to things like thunderstorms, I mean, it stands to reason that things like that might occur. So I think that you just have to kind of know the individual patient and how they respond to things. And then maybe if it's thunderstorm related or fireworks related and we can kind of predict when that's going to happen you might have to give them extra steroid kind of preemptively like mm-hmm. if you know it's going to rain you know if you know there's a big thunderstorm coming if you know it's the 4th of July we might need to up the steroid for a few days yeah i remember there was a a case that i had worked with where at some point the dog was well controlled but the owner had kind of slacked on bringing it in as often for its injections so it was like several weeks late or something like that and also not super good about giving the glucocorticoid so uh the dog had come in for a groom and was there for like half a day and then the owner had left it at home after the groom went back to work and came home the dog had had died so it was that's i don't know that was just one of the things which like yeah scary (laughs) Attempt like yeah. It. So, and I would say that that does sound like a really high risk situation where we've got some kind of non compliance going on, and then we we introduce the patient to a super stressful situation. That type of thing is not going to end well. So, definitely, strong client communication is needed to make sure that they understand. Hey, if you don't give this medicine, your dog's going to die. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to be that. Direct. I know I've said those words to clients. Yeah, if you don't give this medicine, your dog will die. Full stop. Mm-hmm. You know, monitoring the patient's individual stress level is just part of it. But overall, the good news 
about Addison's disease is that it's got a pretty good prognosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty good as long as we got good, you know, good therapy and good owner education. Median time for stabilization is about 14 months. Uh, the treatment is lifelong. And unfortunately, if you have a very large breed dog, the expense for the mineral corticoid therapy can be a little, be a lot of cupcakes. Yeah. But yeah, it's pricey. Yeah. But they do well. Mm-hmm. Many of the Addisonian patients that I've had have done well for years and live a completely normal lifespan. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a few that haven't done well, but those are are low incidents compared to the ones that have flourished yeah. with medicine. Yeah, the owner compliance is super important in this, and that definitely contributes to the uh, longevity <laughs> of the patient. How Betty's case turned out was that Betty was stabilized in the hospital, did have the test performed, uh, was diagnosed with Addison's disease, and was started on both glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid therapy. She was started on oral prednisolone and DOCP injections, and Betty is still doing great. Yay, Betty. She's had no more hospitalizations for, quote, pancreatitis. Has to make that owner a little happy that, you know, we found out what the root of the problem was. And, you know, yes, you have to do some some work, but you don't have to have your poor animal hospitalized every month. Yeah. That's a little well, ridiculous. That dog was cruising. The dog wasn't at crisis yet. It was coming. It was cruising for one. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was coming. Well, JJ, what's the best thing that happened to you this week? Oh, goodness. Um, I got Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> That's not oh. really the best thing, probably. It's just the first okay. thing that came to mind. Um, hmm. <laughs> I did see a um, suggestion on how to add some things to the work list. I don't know how many people out there in the veterinary field that use Avamark and use the work list within Avamark. You know, it can be a, a love-hate relationship, but... I saw some suggestions on how to utilize the work list for some new things that I'm going to suggest to the practice manager next week. So I don't know. I think that sounds great. I guess that's my my happy spot of the day. <laughs> well, I watched a couple of documentaries that were really interesting. The first one was uh, on Netflix. It was a documentary about the Challenger explosion. Oh, I saw that was on there. And it was really good, although very anger-inducing. Yeah, that one, because mm. I'm like right at that perfect age where that uh, I was, I remember them making a big deal about them putting a teacher in space while we were in school. I mean, I was... Mm-hmm. When did that Were happen? Were you watching it live when it exploded? I was listening to. I was at the. I was at a doctor's appointment, and yeah. they were broadcasting it over the speaker in the waiting area, and I heard it. And I just remember, like, I don't know. It was like one of those pivotal moments in your life where you realize that something really bad could go down because hadn't really happened in my short life yet. But yeah, what year was that? Was that eighty six? Yeah, nineteen eighty six. So I was either ten or eleven. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, I just remember, like, 
one of the, that was one of the first times in, in my existence that I had like that, that gut clenching, just, oh, wow. A lot of people just died. A lot of important people, not that, you know, everybody's not important, but, you know, there was a lot put into this. And this is, uh, I think somewhere in this house and God knows where I've kept, we used to get weekly readers. Yeah. And there were like little newspapers for your elementary school. Yeah. And I kept the one that was like, we got one the day before. I think the Challenger was supposed to lift off and it had like a big write up and pictures. And I kept that just because it was like a big deal to me because I was at that perfect age of, oh, shit, this is this is very bad. Yeah. I mean, I was too young to know what was happening at the time. My older brother I read though was like 13 mm. and I remember him saying like they were actually watching it like you know when mm-hmm. they would wheel in a tv and like watch it mm-hmm. I would have been if I hadn't gone to the doctor's office <laughs> apparently it was like a common thing tons of elementary school and high school people were watching mm-hmm. it live and it ex- just ex- flip and explodes mm-hmm. so so upsetting I mean that alone is really upsetting but then when you listen to this when you watch this documentary and you (laughs) you're looking at like the blatant disregard for the safety concerns that were brought up it just makes you oh man it Mm -hmm. just made me mad like i was mad about it Mm -hmm. like how like how 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 when you have people coming to you saying you know, hey, um, this super important uh, structure is damaged every time we test the solid rocket boosters. And also the backup O-ring mm-hmm. is also damaged, especially if it's cold. And then, like, you're going to ignore, like, every single person. Like, people in the documentary are saying, like, I knew the rocket was going to blow up. <laughs> like, I... Like, I knew it was going to blow up. I told people it was going to go blow up. Like, I, we were sitting in the meeting saying it's about to blow up. And then it flipping happens. And, like, to have to deal with that is bad. But then there were also people, and I was actually surprised that some of the main people that kind of overrode the decision to postpone, like, they were like, the people that made the decision, like, yes, we know all of these engineers are worried that this is going to be a catastrophic failure. I don't think they're right, though, so I'm going to go ahead and sign off on it happening anyway. Like, if I made a decision like that, I would not be able to go on. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I would not be able to live with myself. Well, you wouldn't but have the, made that decision. Oh, no. <laughs> Girl, no. <laughs> if anyone is like, like, I think this is a bad... I'm like, you think it's what? Did they like, put we're not a doing sociopath in charge? Because... <laughs> well... So I was surprised that they um they interviewed them. They agreed to be on the thing. And they didn't and have they any... They were saying, they were like, I feel very sad that it happened, but I wouldn't change anything about what I did. That's, like, I'd made a, I made a good decision. That's the exact <laughs> mark of a sociopath. No remorse. They're like, I, mm, looking back, like, I didn't have any... I would make the same decision again with the same information that I had back then, you know, and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, wow, what? Like how? What? No, because you needed to stay on some bureaucratic schedule. You you wasted the lives of eight 
brilliant people. Uh Like, that was worth it to you to stay on schedule. I can't even with people like that. Uh People that think like that, like, I cannot even with it. So, anyway. So that's not positive. I was supposed to say something happy. But anyway... (laughs) Anyway, that is a fascinating documentary, and I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, like, this applies to veterinary medicine, mm-hmm. because it just makes you, well, I mean, I think all of us have been in situations before where you're like, uh, I'm real worried about this thing, or whatever, and kind of no one listens to you, mm-hmm. and so I was sitting there being like, what the fuck, you know, like, yep. I was super mad. But anyway, so anyway, after that, then I also watched the, um, the, oh, JJ, what is that one that I texted you about? Um, it's called Love. Love Fraud or something like love that. Love Fraud. And it is on Showtime, which I know not everyone has. But, but apparently you can get to it from Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah. So you might just like rent it or something yeah, from Amazon. Yeah, or you can buy it. But Okay. It is so interesting because uh, stories where people, well, it's the same sort of thing, like sociopathic behavior. It just is so interesting to me. It where is I'm to like, me too. how, yes, but why and how can you treat people so terribly and live with yourself? I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. Because that, so it's fascinating. That feeling of you shouldn't or, that they're going to, you're going to hurt them or that's yeah, not there. Just, yeah. Nah, there's a, a show nah, on fine. the ID channel called like signs of a psychopath or something like that. Ooh, I would like where, that. Yeah. I just found it. I, mean, I think it's kind of new and there's only so many seasons. I've watched a couple episodes, but it basically like shows a, a person who's committed a terrible crime and it shows them like being interviewed by the police and how their court cases goes. And it has, different type um, psychologists that they're interviewing and they're saying, so right there, that person does this. And that's, you know, that's very telling. And uh, cause I'm like, I always want to be prepared if I meet one of these people. <laughs> I'm sure I have, <laughs> I mean, in my life, I'm surely I have at some point, but oh, 25% of the population mm-hmm. is estimated to have sociopathic traits. So it's 25%, like, one out of every four people. I get like, Worry sometimes. I'm like, am I am I a psychopath or sociopath or something? No, because the fact that you worry about it is actually exactly a sign the that thing that not. disproves it. Like it take people who are sociopathic aren't ever worried uh-huh. about anything. Yeah. Now there is a difference between sociopathy yes. and psychopathy. Sometimes yes. they can coexist. But anyway, oh, that'd be uh, a terrible very combo. Mm-hmm. But okay, but anyway. It's called Love Fraud, and it's about a guy who serially victimizes women through, like, um, basically tricking them into marrying him, and then he steals uh, all of their money and resources and disappears Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again. Kind of like that, what was that, uh, something John? Dirty John. Dirty John thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, in the... um, documentary there is a female bounty hunter that's chasing him and she is really interesting like (laughs) as a character i I mean she's a real person but i was like i was like holy crap look at this (laughs) chick like (laughs) this chick is not fucking around (laughs) 
Oh, boy. But anyway. Okay. And then, so then the last thing that I watched was The Vow on HBO, which is about the Nexium mm-hmm. cult, which is so bizarre because it started off as like a, almost like a, um, management consultation, mm-hmm. like networking event. Mm-hmm. And then, then by the time that you realize you're deeply involved with the cult, it's too late. <laughs> and there's like, like everything. I, so I was like listening to it, watching it and honestly thinking like, actually, like all these ideas are actually really pretty good. Like, <laughs> like I would join this, you know, or whatever. And then. It finally, though, by like the fourth or fifth episode, you're like, wait a minute, like <laughs> that doesn't sound right because uh, all these cult things, what I don't understand is like, I mean, I get the wanting to make the world better and always acting ethically. Of course, I want those things. Mm-hmm. But like at a certain point when it always turns to weird sex stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, Every cult show that I watch is like, all right, I'm on board. I can see why these people are doing it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I can no longer see why you're doing this. Now we have introduced creepy sex stuff. So, like, (laughs) then it's a no. Yep. That right there should be the litmus test. Is the person that you're following asking you to do weird sex stuff? Then... Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Right. We're going into cult territory. (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. Where, uh, how in one episode I can go from, like, I totally understand this, and how is this a cult exactly? This just seems like um a reasonable thing to, like, never mind, I was wrong, this is an ultra cult, bye. Like, <laughs> y'all are Brandon people, and it's weird sex stuff, and the guy is creepy, like, no. No, no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. When the leader becomes anyway. the deity, it's time to leave the room. Yes. Oh, boy. All right, well, uh, announcements. I have one announcement. Mm -hmm. The Alabama Veterinary Technician Association did go ahead and plan a 5K, which is a virtual. And they're saying that uh, you can walk, jog, nap, any of those things. But it is to benefit mental health awareness in our profession. So if you go to the Alabama Veterinary Technician website or social media, the information is there. And it is apparently going on the week of October 11th through the 18th. So everybody check that out. How does one nap for a 5K? I think that you just donate money to the cause and then don't run. Gotcha. I think that's how. (laughs) Pretty sure. The same way that you could video game or whatever. Ooh, you know what I'm listening to right now? This is totally unrelated. I um, downloaded Sense and Sensibility on Audible, and I'm listening to it, and I'm having a really good time. It was on the other day. So that can be the positive thing. I watched, I think it was like Thursday, maybe it was on. Which one? Sense and Sensibility. um, Which uh, version of it? The uh, one with Hugh Grant. Oh, that's the best one. Yep. Yep. That's the best one. I've seen it so many times. Who's the main? Um, who who plays the main character in it? Um, uh, Emma Thompson. Yeah, Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet. Yeah. Mm. And it has Alan Rickman in it. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like whenever young, like a really young Alan Rickman. Yeah, I love Alan. Yeah. Rick- I'm so oh, poor Alan too. Rickman. Sad he's gone. But yeah, uh, yeah, he's. Uh, I could listen to him talk forever and. Uh, mm. 
He's not bad to look at either, especially with that hair in that one. Ooh, do Pride and Prejudice next. I will. I will. I've read both. Sense and Sensibility is my favorite, though. Mm -hmm. It is. It's just my favorite. And as I've been um, listening to it, like I crack up and laugh out loud Uh because Jane Austen is so. She is funny as shit. Like. And in, she throws so much shade, she too. She does. And that's one of the things, like, I mean, I like them both, but Pride and Prejudice is a little bit, mm, I like it a little better than Sensibility because I feel like there's so much more, like, humor in it. I mean, Sense and Sensibility is funny, too, but I don't, especially in the book, I've, I just, there was just so much little, like, side-eye humor in it that I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> It's just it. You know what it is. It's super British. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I like it. Same. Okay. Well, so we are still taking submissions for the Halloween episode. Yes. So we're going to need you to send those, including all of your clinic ghost stories, all of your spooky uh, ghost pet stories, all of your terrible Halloween cases. <laughs> oh, we're going to have you send them. Yeah, chocolate vomit, chocolate ingestion. Yep, (laughs) to introvetspodcast at gmail dot com. Hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Hashtag introvets. Mm -hmm. What else? Mm. Oh, I think that's rate. Oh, and uh, subscribe. Yeah, and leave a review if you feel so inclined. Please, please do. It really helps. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.